Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh57. This week, we have all four regular hosts. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of ThisIsTrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet, and the meme site Randy'sRandom.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer at MacMost.com, where I post lots of Apple tutorials and WPTipsAndHacks.com, where I post stuff for WordPress users. And I also make mobile games at CleverMedia.com. I'm Leo Notenboom, Chief Question Answerer out at AskLeo.com. I'm also the publisher of a couple of non-techy sites, NotAllNewsIsBad.com, a daily antidote for everything else and heroicstories.org, twice weekly stories of people just being good people. I'm Kevin Savitz, and I still remember how to program in BASIC. Whoa. <laughs> I think I do, too. I think if I yeah, came I, I down could, to I it. Could, I could put out a hello world. Go, I think <laughs> that qualifies as, as a bicycle skill, right? Once you learn it, you, you've got it. I think so, Yeah. But not all languages are like that. I mean, try. I mean, I used to know how to program in Pascal, and I yeah. used to know how to program in C, and I used to know how to program in Perl. And I feel like those languages are, you don't use it, you lose it. No, yeah, I don't remember Pascal at all. And Lisp, I forgot immediately as soon as I finished the test on Lisp. <laughs> as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, probably, I probably didn't learn the entire semester in college. And then at the night before the test, I probably, the final, I learned Lisp. And then I aced the test. And then I promptly forgot it immediately. That's kind of like me and Morris code for my ham license. Yeah. Yeah. That's you an easy still, one. You still know it. You've, I know S and O. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember which one's which though. If I, I'm ever, if I'm ever in trouble. Da, 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 SOS. Yeah. I'm, if I'm ever in trouble, they're going to get from me. It's just SOS, 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 SOS. It's going to keep repeating those. Someone can't decide what to say. That's too bad. So, 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 so. <laughs> and I can tap out, um, uh, what is it, CQ. I thought Could have sworn some time ago you and your wife were tapping secret messages to each other across a dinner table or something. But nope. I could, we, do, we do American Sign Language. Maybe that's what I'm getting at. The dinner table. Yes. Yeah. The uh, I had I mentioned earlier and I tweeted tweeted earlier today about the something about the Pascal programming language and then my mom sent me a text and, and she said now I don't remember this either my mom has a better memory on this stuff than I do or she's losing it and just making it up but she, she said um Pascal is a language I took in college as my foreign language <laughs> I completely don't remember that I don't I didn't take like an actual foreign language in college so maybe maybe I. I managed to do that but um i could imagine you foreign arguing foreign. with the dean about how that counts as your foreign language oh yeah it's totally and something you do and Absolutely. winning yeah i yeah. think i said something similar to my mom <laughs> <laughs> so and my mom listened to this episode uh, i think last week or uh, two weeks ago she she listened for some reason for the first time and, and, and she, she started texting me. It's like, I'm, I'm worried about this thing that Leo said. And should I do this? <laughs> should I faster? I said, like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Go to askleo.com, mom. Just I don't know. back up, mom. That's all you really need to do. That's right. I'm sorry to have alarmed your mother. Kevin. <laughs> I'm going to give her your phone number, Leo, so she can call you with some questions. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> 
so so Leo would be second tier tech support after you. Uh, I'm going to defer straight to him. He can be first tier. That's fine. <laughs> I've been doing tech support for for her for a very long time, and uh, feel like it's someone else's turn. My mom finally gave up her computer at 94. Wow. Yeah, I think she's entitled to say I'm done. Yeah. Oh, my my grandma lived to be 100. And- three 103 she lived and, wow. and, and up to the end she was used her computer she logged into aol every day that's she, great yeah she, she yeah. yeah she and she had like friends that she would talk to and she would play slingo all the time on aol oh and wow she knew what she was doing on, on that that old Windows so machine. listeners what's your excuse yeah life goals man that's what i want to be i want to be awesome yeah but to, i but but she did not back up my grandma. I'm pretty sure she did not know how to back <laughs> up. Shame on her. She relied on other people. Yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> well, we have more on backup later in the show because that and that's pretty wild. Yep. Very cool. Excellent. So, so I did something uh, techy today. Uh, I upgraded to- the lights in my kitchen from fluorescent to LED. God, are they bright? Cool. Yep. I got sick and tired of tubes going out and, you know, the latest one was even when I replaced the tubes, the light didn't come back on. So it's probably a ballast problem. And I said, screw this. New lights are 50 bucks. And uh, so did you you end up putting in new fixtures or did you? Entirely new fixtures. And I didn't want to fuss with, you know, trying to find circle lights that were LED. It's just like, give me new fixtures. I found LED fixtures that were exactly the same, you know, the 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 look and the format of my um, circle lights that I put in in 2003. Mm-hmm. So you can't even tell the difference when you look at them unless you turn them on and then <laughs> it's like I'm blind. Did you um are they dimmable? Yes, they are. And, and they're so solution. bright, I am going to get a dimmer for them because yeah. they're that bright. So I have found, um, or I, I tried to use LED bulbs like before they were ready. And there was like, when yeah. I in California, I went to a place and it, like I bought like a bulb and it was like, I don't know, $50. It was really, you know, I bought a couple crazy, of bulbs yeah. and, and it was crazy. And then they were, they were terrible and they were dim and they were just really no good. Now, my favorite LED bulbs I get at Costco and... Yeah. And and they're fine. They do come now. Uh, these are regular bulb shaped bulbs, so I, they're not w- weird circle things. And I can't speak to that. But they do come in different brightness levels, so that's nice. So if you have ones that are really too bright, you might be able to find the same shape and in 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 dimmer, less le- fewer lumens. The um and yes, yeah, so if you want if you have a dimmer switch, you really need to get the the dimmable bulbs. And even then it's not as good as an incandescent dimmable. I mean, there's uh, the bulbs that I've tried I've used from Costco because all of our switches are, are dimmable. Sometimes when they're not at full brightness, there's, there's a pronounced flickering effect or it goes from like off to like medium. There's no like really low set, there's you no know? So dim, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's no on the low end. So I feel like the, the dimming technology still has a way to go, but it's, it's way better than it was. And it's improved so much though. Yeah. yeah. And I was really surprised that when I got these, there was a sheet of paper in the box that gave you compatible dimmers, actual model numbers of several different brands that will work with these things, yep. which is, you know, brilliant. 
literally. So <laughs> we, we're we're in the middle of a, a remodel here, parts a part of our house, and I was chatting with the uh, contractor the other day, literally about uh, LED bulbs, lighting, and so forth, because as they're replacing some light fixtures and just doing some maintenance work, we're throwing in LED bulbs all the way around. And you're right. I mean, we turned the hallway lights on one day after we replaced all the bulbs, and it was like, oh, wow, this is really bright. Look at all that dirt. <laughs> Look at all that corky fur. Um, oh, yeah. But the, um, it's interesting because lighting has always been complicated to begin with. There's been a variety of socket sizes. There's a variety of bulb sizes. If you're looking at um, indoor floods, there's floods and spots. They have different sizes and shapes and so forth. And what we realized is that with the um, onset of uh, LED, uh, compatible LED bulbs, things have actually gotten significantly more complex because it's not necessarily a one-for-one -one replacement. You now have some additional choices. For example, the color temperature. Do you want the bulb to have the same color as your incandescent bulb, or do you want it to be bright white, or do you want it to be something in between? Yeah, um, I did do that too. Do you want it to be dimmable or not? Um, you know, those kinds of things. Do you and, want it to have Wi-Fi access or not? Nope. Well, there's that. That's, and that's not, even, not even getting into the whole Internet of Things um, home automation uh, variation. But um, it's, it has gotten really complex. The nice part, though, is that uh, I, you know, if I have a, a bulb here, in fact, I've got one sitting on my desk right now that we just replaced that I'll probably end up just going out to Amazon and saying, okay, I've got this, what's an LED equivalent, and we'll come up with something really, really good and not terribly expensive, and they will last forever compared yeah. to, compared to yeah. the bulbs. So. Yeah, that's the other thing I was going to say. I, I, this is my, my boo-hoo, you know, rich person complaint, but we've got a big house, and it just eats light bulbs. I mean, right. and it used to be there would always be bulbs going out, and, and um. I have to get, go get the ladder out of the garage and, and you know, replace light. And, and as we've switched to LED bulbs, that problem has just like gone away. Yep. I think I've replaced one LED bulb, you yep. know, and it just, it just, yeah, lasts. I very rarely had to replace because before this we had the twisty uh, fluorescent bulbs. Very rarely had to replace those. Even the ones outside. And I live in Colorado where it gets really cold right. and they still work. It's funny, the, one of the first um, rooms in this house that I put in LED lights was my office. It's got four uh, floods in the ceiling. And so they've been around for a while. They're the older, more expensive. And as it turns out, they're also big and they run a lot hotter than the current uh, crop of LED equivalents. So now the fact that they're going to last forever is actually a strike against them because I want to replace them with the cooler ones and, the, mm. and maybe you know change the color at the same time and all that kind of stuff. I've moved those out to the garage. Um, I've got some really ancient um, fluorescent bulbs that I just stuck in the garage and yeah, that's a good, that's they a good idea. take a while to warm up or flicker on. You know, so what? It's the garage. The one interesting, the, the reason I asked if you replaced the uh, fixture, I couldn't remember what kind of fixture you had there. Uh, we have a couple of places, including the garage, where we have eight foot tube fluorescent bulbs. Yeah. We used to. We now have eight foot tube LED bulbs. Yeah. The problem is that it is not a plug-and-play replacement. You actually have to uh, pull apart the light fixture, take out the ballast, 
throw it away in some kind of environmentally responsible way of it. <laughs> sure. And then uh, you basically, instead of doing the weird wiring that they do for fluorescent lights, no, you take one end and stick it on one end of the bulb, put one end at the other end of the bulb, and they turn on when you turn on the switch. I mean, it's, it's exactly what you, it's the simplest wiring solution possible. So it's a fairly easy retrofit, but it's not plug and play. And we've done that a couple of times now, and it's, it's actually been, uh, uh, you know, like I said, especially with the eight-foot fluorescents, you don't want to replace those very often. Yeah. And now I shouldn't have to replace them for a very long time. Have any of you guys played with the color-changing bulbs like the Hue lights? No. My, I have a, a nephew, son of a nephew, actually, who does. Son of a nephew. Son of a nephew, yeah. Uh, I, when I was visiting his house some time ago, he had to show me he had these hanging lights over his, a bar that he, that he had just put in mm-hmm. and uh, whipped out his iPhone and started changing the colors and doing all sorts of, you know, disco-y type effects. But yeah, they're kind of cool. a good place to do it over the bar. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, it was perfect. You know, and, and you know, he's, he's early 20s. It's like perfect for his, for his lifestyle, too. I mean, he's going to have little parties in there. Yeah, I've got, you know, the thing about the LEDs, they last so long that when they do finally go out, you notice more. So, mm-hmm. like, I, I was really early on, on the LED things, and I, I had, like, a, my old house, like, a home theater, and I got these, like, a six-pack at, I think it was Sam's Club, really early, of uh, bulbs. And they were perfect because they were, back then, like Kevin was saying, they are really dim. You know, I think they were like the equivalent to like 40 watt bulbs or whatever. So I was like, yeah. oh, perfect. I'll get these. And I wouldn't have to replace those bulbs, you know, for a long time. And I, I installed them there. And sure enough, at some point I was cursing them because they, you know, two of them had gone out and, and others were kind of starting to flicker. And I was like, ah, oh, they don't last long. Like they said, I mean, I just bought these, let's see. Oh God, it was 10 years ago, <laughs> you know, and if they had been incandescent bulbs, I would have replaced them like five times, you know, and, and I probably wouldn't even have remembered when the last time I replaced them. But here it was just seemed weird because it was the first time I had to replace them. So you do, they do eventually die, but then it's, you have to look back at like a really long time to remember when you bought that bulb that just actually went out. The only real concern I have right now is that, uh, for example, in my office, I've got these four lights. They're actually four different um, LED lights, which means, you know, they all look just a little bit different. My concern, of course, is when you've got some place where that's, that is a little bit more important, like, uh, you know, matched lights on either side of a mirror or lights in a room or something. When one goes out, will you in fact be able to find its exact replacement in, <laughs> in 10 years, right? And who knows? Yeah. I, and I also have a situation where in my old house, I had replaced all the bulbs with LEDs. And it was great. The new house, I have many incandescent bulbs. The reason being is because the light fixtures here are actually designed for incandescent bulbs. I'm not talking about like technically designed, not the engineering. I'm talking about the actual look. Mm-hmm. They're open and they're meant with dimmable switches so you can see the filaments. Right. So when you replace them with LEDs, they just look horrible. No, there, uh, there, there they, are replacement bulbs. I've got yeah. There are LED bulbs with LED filaments. It's yeah, I've seen them. They didn't pass muster with the rest of the family because they just don't look as good. These are really these are meant to look cool, like retro. Then throw the damn fixture style. away. Well, no, they're because they're <laughs> yeah. really like I have two that like hang down above the sink, and they're these long tubes. These special incandescent bulbs fit in them, and they look really cool. And that I've got this other one in the hallway, and and just the way the spiral shape 
uh, like, I don't know. So I'm stuck with these dimmable incandescents right. that do go out every once in a you're while. You're destroying. I believe, I believe the lights you're talking about are called Edison bulbs. Yes. Um, but you don't need to use, if they're dimmable, I found you don't need to use Edison bulbs. You can use regular filaments as long as you get the clear ones. Mm. And they look good enough because you're not, it's not an on-off switch where suddenly it's so bright you can't see anymore. You're actually like putting them up halfway. And then they look like Edison bulbs, but you're not spending the money on Edison bulbs. Sure. So anyway. But yeah, the Edison bulb, that's a whole other thing. Those are actually, a lot of times, those are almost bare, like bare fixtures. And the bulb itself is the design of the... Right. Of the and there thing. are, in fact, LED replacement Edison bulbs. Yeah. So- Huh. No, seriously, it's just, it's yeah. the size and the shape of the glass. Lettuce and bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> and Kevin's back, yep. <laughs> I just want like an electric arc, like a light that's an electric arc. There's just two like, you know, bare pieces of metal and you turn the light on and an arc just shoots across and that's what illuminates the room. And you just don't want to, you know, have any children around that could just stick their hands in the middle. Or maybe you do, because it would be kind of harmless, you know. Hey, it'll stand up on end, you know. So, Tesla bulbs. All right, I think 15 minutes on Thank you for listening to the Light Bulb Enthusiast Podcast. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Show notes will be it. <laughs> Gary, what have you been doing? Oh, so I, I got into seeing some movies. As the Oscars get closer, I like to see as many. And I saw a bunch of movies this last week, but I want to mention two. Uh, first one, real quick, uh, you know, that I saw that movie called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which looks like a kid's movie because it kind of is, but it's an animated film and it's a Spider-Man film, but it is just probably the uh, most gorgeous animation i've seen in years it's good it's you know, you saw too mm-hmm. yeah it, it, the animation was just stunning i mean i was like the, this not only should win the oscar for best animated feature there probably shouldn't even be any votes for the rest of the films not that those other films are <laughs> bad it's just that this one is it's it's almost like this is the way i described it to somebody it it made comics look just as good as all the comic book people, I've always thought comics look. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like brilliant. Anyway, so it's just great. And it's a really interesting story, and I love stories like that. So um, is into that. The other one I saw was a movie called They Shall Not Grow Old, which is a documentary by Peter Jackson, who made you know the Lord of the Rings films. And he took World War I original footage. And yeah, I've heard of that one. It's yeah. He, interesting. Yeah, he said his special effects team loose on it and basically said, make it color, make it 3D, you know, from these grainy black and white little square, you know, I don't know if they're eight millimeter films or whatever. And uh, and it's fantastic because you're used to seeing World War One stuff and it just doesn't look real. It looks, you know, this black and white grainy silent. And they had sound to it too. Um, and it's just uh, so it's seeing World War One in a whole new light. And it's an interesting way they did it as a documentary, too. They, there's no narrator. They use uh, recordings of veterans describing their experiences, and they weave it together to basically give the experience of a British soldier going to the French uh, you know, uh, trenches um, from the beginning of the war to the end of the war. And anyway, it was really good. I've noticed the Ken Burns documentaries tend to add sound to the old stuff that you know there was no sound on. Right. So I, I think he kind of set the 
the bar for that. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's kind of legit now. And I, I think what they did, it sounded like they, you know, they had so many audio recordings, probably made decades ago, obviously, uh, you know, that they had archived. And it almost sounded like some of the sounds, the audio was stuff they took from those recordings or maybe stuff they took from, mm-hmm. maybe there were audio recordings somehow. I don't know. But anyway, it was, it was a really pretty master, masterfully done and a good, just a good movie really put you in there. And I, th- it, you know, uh, I learned a lot about. So we have colorization. So I'm going to coin the word soundization. soundization. So there. There you go. That's the thing. I saw a couple of movies too. I saw uh, there were two documentaries out about the fire festival, which was this debacle of a music uh, festival that happened a few years ago. Oh yeah. 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 I saw the preview for that. Yeah. Or that didn't happen. It didn't happen. No. Um, uh, But man, it was like a mess. Uh, And so two documentaries came out just a few days apart. One is on uh, Hulu and one is on Netflix. And uh, so uh, we watched both of them to kind of get two different perspectives. One kind of focuses more on the 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 company, and one focuses a little more on the uh, the people who went to the festival and found out there was no festival there, or you know mattresses to sleep on or running water. So <laughs> um, anyway, those are pretty interesting. All right, cool, cool stuff. So I guess I'll jump into item number one. Uh, we are hosting a meetup in Denver on April 2, and listeners are welcome. We're actually doing a meetup for online entrepreneurs that, uh, you know, if you want to talk to and hear some, some presentations about what we do online, uh, you're welcome to come and uh, do some networking with other online entrepreneurs and such like that. And I'll put the uh, URL for the meetup on the show page. And we're all going to be there. Yeah, yep. I'm looking forward yeah. to that. We uh, presumably, if if everything, uh, you know, if everything collides correctly, collide being the wrong word, um, comes we, together, we will have uh, recorded an episode the day before. That's right. Yeah. So come out and meet us and uh, tell us about your your online entrepreneurial activities, or just hang around with some geeks. Come around and say hi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Leo, item number two is yours. Yeah, so there's this headline, Digital Exchange Loses $137 Million as Founder Takes Passwords to the Grave. Oops. Yeah, it's definitely an an oops of of a a couple of variations. So this is all about cryptocurrency. Basically, what happened here was the founder, uh, was only 30 years old, as it turns out, uh, passed away due to Crohn's disease or some complication related to Crohn's uh, and apparently uh, kept the only copy of what is essentially the money uh, in an encrypted offline uh, wallet, digital wallet, probably stored on a USB thumb drive of some sort. It's interesting because we, uh, what I ended up learning was there's a, a difference between a hot and a cold wallet, which I, I just I kind of found fascinating. We've probably heard of uh, cryptocurrency exchanges getting hacked and, and things getting stolen. And one of the ways they do that is they actually go in and uh, attempt to attack the actual storage of the money, which is essentially just cryptographically um, uh, signed, cryptographically um, encrypted 
uh, data, but uh, it's in only one place, this, uh, this wallet. A, a hot wallet is a wallet that actually is connected to something. It's connected to the system, apparently. For it's available possible. online. Uh, available online is probably a little bit too much of a, a little too loose a terminology. It's at least available to the back end of the systems running, right? So okay. Something like you and I could could necessarily. And of course, the hack then is to is to tunnel your way through the systems that are protecting the hot wallet in order to get, gain access to its its contents. One of the approaches. Uh, it's generally something that is uh, recommended for individuals is to actually have your cryptocurrency stored in what they call a cold wallet, which is essentially nothing more than that same information, uh, encrypted of course, uh, stored on an offline device like a USB thumb drive that is not connected to anything. Apparently, that's what happened here, except he had $137 million worth of cryptocurrency in this wallet. Being the good and security conscious person that he was, it of course is very well encrypted, as is his laptop, as are his files, as is another USB thumb drive, apparently. As are his backups. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, the, the, the problem, of course, is that when you heavily encrypt something like that, if you securely encrypt things, uh, if you don't leave an out of some sort, a way for someone else to gain access to it when you die or when you become incapacitated or whatever, um, then it's effectively gone. It's just up, up, in, uh, you know, up in a poof of smoke as far as, as, as that goes. It's, uh, it's really unfortunate. And so the very, the, the, the huge lesson that, uh, I mean, obviously most of us don't use cryptocurrency. I have a little bit of Bitcoin just because the technology fascinates me, both blockchain and Bitcoin itself. The, um, uh, you know, whether or not cryptocurrency of any sort is going to take over the world at some point, like some people predict, heck if I know. But even if you're not in the least bit interested in cryptocurrency, there's this huge takeaway and that says that, you know what? If you've password protected something, if you've encrypted something, if you've locked up your, your, your email account, if you've got your two-factor authentication nailed down, everything so that hackers can't get in, well, make sure that your loved ones aren't put in the place of trying to be hackers. Make sure that they have a way to get at the important information that you might leave behind. It's unlikely that I will leave behind $137 million worth of anything. But I do have, you know, assets and information that would be important to people like, say, my wife. Uh, if something were to happen to me, she needs to be able to get at that. I do have things very well secured, at least I hope so. So I want to make sure that there's a way for her to do that. We've got those things set up, but you have to think about that beforehand. And that's apparently what this founder failed to consider. Part of the, part of the thing that frustrates me is that, uh, you know, if, if I read the cause of his death correctly, like I said, complications due to uh, Crohn's, then it's not like it came up suddenly, right? It's not like he was walking across the street and got hit by a car. He had some warning that perhaps things weren't as good as they might otherwise have been. In a situation like that, I mean, if I found out that I was going to be dying in a week, I'd be triple checking all of these, this recovery information that I've left behind for my wife. 
Honey, here's my password. Something like that, yeah. Um, and uh, in, in a case like this, apparently, he didn't do anything like that. So more than anything else, that's the important thing. It's, it's easy to wag fingers at losing $137 million. But in fact, this is a real problem that does hit um, you know, the average computer user from time to time. And it's something that we should all be thinking about beforehand. It's one thing I like about LastPass, and I assume other password blockers, that you can actually set up survivors to get access to your LastPass password vault. And my wife is one of those. So if I, you know, suddenly disappear, whether I'm dead or whatever, after a certain amount of time, (laughs) LastPass says, hey, we haven't heard from Randy for a while. Do you want access to his vault? Is that the way it works? I thought it was the other way around. I thought it was um, get real, you're gone, and uh, asks LastPass for access to your vault, and that starts the clock. And then you've got, they send you um, information that says, hey, this person is asking for access to your vault. Do you want to allow it? If you're dead, you can't respond. But if you're alive, it's a safety measure that prevents them from getting when perhaps there is something else. Right. Going and on. and you, you can set the amount of time that right. it allows, that it waits for the answer. So right. I think you're probably right. I think that's and, on a person basis as well. And what happens if my wife is in the same car crash and she dies too? Well, you can have multiple people and Leo happens to be my backup for that. Yay. And I'm, um, and I'm Leo's backup for his. So Exactly, exactly. If there's something that goes on, um, you know, the only, in, in LastPass's case, uh, the only requirement there is that both people have LastPass accounts. It's right. interesting. I've not actually run a, another um, password vault that actually has something like this. I really LastPass's implementation, but I've not run across a similar thing some of the other password vaults. I run across it in an online service. I think Facebook kind of does some that. Um, you can set up um, yeah, I think you're right. trusted contacts that can do something similar. Granted, it's specifically for your Facebook account and not you know, your, your world, which is basically what you have in LastPass. But it's something, right? It's better than nothing. It's, it's, but again, to, to bring it back to point, you have to think about these things beforehand. This is not something that, that your survivors can figure out after the fact. This is something that you have to plan for and put into place. And you should if you have anything of value, including photographs or manuscripts or anything. In our case also, I mean, you know, each of us, all four, all the keepers of the technology in our families, um, in our families, whatever, I think that puts an, an extra burden and responsibility on each of us to have something in this uh, because when that happens um, it's chances are the information they want is in something you controlled yep and someday you will die period you will die hearkening back to what was that that was last week's uh, title wasn't it something like that all, all gonna die or not so, <laughs> on on that up note speaking of we're all gonna die uh, electric airplanes really <laughs> well <laughs> So this is an interesting story, but uh, it's okay. So here's the deal. There's apparently a pilot shortage and there has been a pilot shortage for a while. Um, There's an article we'll link to um, that's half about that. Uh, It's fascinating. Actually, pilots don't get paid very much and the job apparently sucks. You know, you have to live in 
places like Newark, New Jersey, usually if you're a you know commercial airline pilot, uh, pay's not that great. You don't get to see your family that often, long hours, all that kind of stuff. But on top of that, it's really tough to get the training you need to become a commercial airline pilot because you not only have to go to flight school and everything, but you have to put in lots and lots of hours of flight training, which you have to pay for, and it's expensive. You know, I've known some people, we all, we all know some people who have gotten their pilot's license, you know, like the lower end stuff, you know, single engine aircraft, that kind of thing. And it's, it is, it's lots of hours, lots of days of going to the local airport, you know, having an instructor, renting out your plane for the couple of hours, doing all your things, logging it all, you know, and adds a few more hours and you have to put in tons of hours in order to get your pilot's license and then slowly move up the chain from just your little pilot's license that allows you to fly by yourself all the way to, you know, getting a commercial license. And one of the things that makes all that so expensive is fuel. Yeah, if you think premium gas is expensive, Avgas tends to be 110 octane. Wow. Yeah, and you think about it, it's all just to take up, you know, every little airport around the country every day has pilots that are trying to get their various levels of licenses, taking out planes, flying them around in a big circle and landing them and burning all this fuel day after day after day, all, you know, and nobody's benefiting from it other than the pilot building towards their license. You know, they're a long way off from the day when they may actually fly passengers somewhere. Um, so this company, and it's a Colorado company called Buy Aerospace, uh, started thinking about how this could be a f- test case for electric aircraft. So engines that are electric engines, like in electric cars, um, they're charged up and there's batteries on the plane. And it's a good case for training because, first of all, they're small aircraft. Uh, they coming back to where they started. So the charging station and battery packs and stuff could be, you know, back there. Um, you don't have to worry about like, Oh, is there a charging station wherever I'm going? You're just coming back to where you were. Um, the, you can pack the plane with batteries because you're not really flying people there, you know, anywhere. So you can take up more space than usual with battery stuff. And it's a fraction of the cost to fly an electric plane. They've developed something called the Sunflyer. Uh, which can fly for three and a half hours, cruising speed on an electric motor. Um, I think it says about a tenth the cost of uh, jet fuel and no pollution, or at least no pollution by the plane. Obviously, the electricity has to come from somewhere. Um, So it'll make it cheaper to become a pilot. It'll solve a lot of issues, and they could, you know, it could be the beginning of electric aircraft. You know, it has these planes for for training thought it was neat i love that uh, mr by was inspired by getting a quick ride in a tesla roadster he said that it accelerated faster than his jet on afterburners which was just mind-boggling yeah yeah those those roadsters the that was that first tesla that came out they didn't make that many of them right though the acceleration on those because electric cars are, um, I mean, electric motors are really powerful. A lot of people tend to think, you know, you, 
we grew up and there were these little electric cars that were like in the seventies and eighties that were like, look ridiculous. And you'd see them in, I don't know, special exhibitions and movies and stuff. And they could go like 35 miles an hour or whatever. And you tend to think of electric vehicles being low powered. And of course, that's not necessarily true. If you, you know, electric motor doesn't have gears, it could, you turn it on, there's an on switch and it's, it's going at, you know, full speed. The tires can't keep up with the pavement. I have a friend of mine who does uh, rally racing and he once told me that, yeah, you can't take an electric car. This was years ago before like Tesla existed. He said, you're not allowed to build your own electric car because it wouldn't be fair. <laughs> you know, you could just, you, you, you jump in it, you have really wide tires to be able to grip the road and you flip the switch and you're just, it will just take off. Um, so yeah, it's uh, electric. It can be really powerful. And yeah, Leo hasn't made any secret that he has a Tesla and I don't know if he's mentioned that it's a performance model. So when we all got together uh, at our secret location that we recorded an episode on, I asked him, it's like, would you floor it for me? Because I want to feel that. (laughs) Damn, was it just, you can feel it throughout your entire body. It's just incredible. And that's their family car. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely part of the experience is, you know, when you've got friends that haven't ridden in an electric car to begin with, there are two things that happen. One is they're amazed at how quiet it is when you first start to pull out. Because again, there's no engine to turn, you know, to turn over or rev up or anything like that. You push a button and it's turned on. Um, but then, yes, uh, coming to a to a nice roll, slow down, and then just punching is is uh, it's an experience. We'll just call it that. Yeah. So cool. Well, soon you'll have you'll be able to have that experience in the air. Yeah. yeah it'll be somebody who has a Tesla, ask him for a ride. Trust me. I'm impressed with the. Um, uh, the range on the electric airplane that you quoted, because I was always under the impression that they had some serious range limitations because, and you also explained the trade-off that they were making that, you know, they can put a lot more batteries in these because they're not trying to haul anything other than two people. Um, right. but I think if, if there's anything that's going to get jump-started by the next wave of uh, change in battery technology, uh, you know, yeah, I can drive my car for 300 miles on a charge, big deal. It's, you know, and it'd be nice if I could, if that could be 3000 or even just double, you know, the 600, but doubling or, or, or significantly improving battery storage capacity is really going to enable uh, applications like electric airplanes, I think. Yep. Cool. So um, I guess I'm next up. So it's interesting. I read an article this afternoon uh, on bleepingcomputer.com, which I think we've mentioned them here before. They're a good source for uh, security-related information, among other things. That uh, Google Chrome, the browser, is about to start displaying warnings about similar or look-alike URLs. Well, it's interesting. So the to, to understand what that means is uh, we, in at least in the English-speaking world, tend to think of the alphabet as being uh, 26 characters, uh, double that for upper and lower case, and even then, upper and lower case don't count when it comes to URLs. Uh, maybe, you know, numbers, throw in some numbers, that kind of stuff. At best, you're talking, you know, 36, you know, maybe 40 max different characters that can actually show up in a domain name, like an askleo.com or a thisistrue.com. 
Unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, uh, that the, the rest of the world doesn't work that way. There's so many different languages, so many different characters. So there is a different character set called Unicode that actually has the characters, or more properly termed the glyphs, that are used by all these different characters and many of all these different languages. Many of these glyphs bear a striking resemblance to the normal um, Arabic characters that we're used to, the A through Zs and so forth. So you could see an askleo.com where the O is actually not an O. It's some random character from some other language. Um, it's actually more easy to explain if you were to think of askleo.com where somebody went and registered askle0.com. Uh, that would kind of sort of look like askleo.com, but it wouldn't be askleo.com. And since I don't own it, I have no idea where it would send you. Don't go there. Um, so, so it's great that they're doing this lookalike checking, right? When you're about to go somewhere, the browser will make sure that you're not um, looking at some of these funny characters, or maybe they'll be doing some kind of comparison against known domains, uh, whatever. The point is they're doing something about it. Uh, I had three reactions to that. A, good. B, the reaction Randy just had, they should have been doing this long ago and the other browsers should be doing something similar. But my question for you guys is my third reaction. Should registrars allow these kind of domains to be registered to begin with? In other words, given that I've got askleo.com, uh, is there any legitimate scenario where somebody should be allowed to purchase askleo.com? It's. I mean, how do they, how do they police that? You know, I know. I, I get that it's impossible, but is it worth solving? Hmm. I don't know because you know I I see the back side of this that it's kind of dangerous, but it's dangerous to say no. You can't do that because what if you are the one that's trying to get Ask Lee Zero or Ask Lee some strange foreign character that looks like an O? Well, I guess I'm kind of assuming that the owner of the whatever primary domain would be allowed to get the lookalikes. In fact, we've all done that, right? It's one of the reasons I own askleo.co because it's a typo. It's a it's a, a not uncommon typo that people will sometimes. It, isn't it? I'd argue that it's already illegal because if you look at if I try to register a name that looked just like Citibank. You know, and had one weird, you know, the I was some uh, alternate version of I in, you know, in the city. Um, I think that their legal department would have something to say about that. They'd probably try to sue me for trademark yeah. infringement. Trademarks, you know? yeah. But and, depending on where you are, they may not have the ability to reach out to your legal system in the country you happen to live in. Yeah, but they could probably get, I don't know, D, I, I mean, I know companies sue over their trade. I mean, you know, McDonald's and Coca-Cola, I'm sure they sue over domain names all the time. Right. Um, and I'm sure they could get, wouldn't DNS providers or the DNS system be another point where they could basically say, well, you could have, you could own the domain name in, you know, this country, but the DNS system in the United States is not going to recognize it or something like that. Again, th th this is possible for sure. I'm just, yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm trying to look at, at, trying to see if there isn't some solution that 
doesn't require what is essentially a piecemeal effort at the last point of entry, right? At the very last moment, we're going to say, oh, no, wait a minute, don't go there. Mm. Yeah, I think Google's solution may actually be the one. I mean, you know, it is the last moment, but at least, um, you know, it does. Because I think, do you guys remember, you know, back when probably when we were all getting our domain names for our different businesses years ago, you talk about it, you need something somebody could type in, right? You know, you got to be able to tell them, say some, say the name of the domain, and they mm-hmm. can go off later and say, well, what was that domain? And to type it in. And that's less and less important now, right? People are sharing links, social, there's text messaging and all this stuff. It's like, it's probably pretty rare that somebody actually hears verbally a domain name and then goes and types it in later on. It's all I think it happens more often than you think. Really? It's, I, I, but it's also the, the problem we're really looking at here isn't so much that as it is right. fishing that's attempt. What, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's the real problem is the right. fishing attempt uh, situation and the best way to protect against those, of course, is password managers. And since operating systems are ha- adding built-in password managers and people are growing more and more used to them, um, hopefully that's also another line of defense against, against it. So, yep. Something you said reminded me a, a mutual friend of ours had the domain um, you know, A-B you know, with different words, obviously, for A and B. Um, and he would have to tell people, uh, yeah, go to a-b.com. And what he ended up having to do was to actually purchase the domain A-D-A-S-H-B <laughs> because people were taking him literally and typing in those two words and spelling out the word dash instead of actually putting a dash between. My biggest pet peeve was when people would say backslash. Go to suchandsuch.com <laughs> backslash whatever. No, there's no backslashes. <laughs> it's a no slash. It's a slash. <laughs> it's a and there, word. And, and in, my, in my case, I, I get even more for slash or no slash. The whole HTTP colon slash slash when you're telling somebody something is redundant. You yeah. don't even have to say anything. Just say askleo.com and you'll be fine. Well, and the thing that drives me crazy about backslash is to make sure you don't put in a backslash, they start saying forward slash. It's like, no, it's just a slash, damn it. Yeah, well. Okay, pedants of the world unite. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm really looking forward to seeing other browsers take on something very similar to this because I think that at least, you know, this last minute check um, is very valuable. And I think it'll save some people uh, some grief. All right, what else let's we got? Move on. Yeah. All right. So I was interested in this. You know, um, Apple, for instance, allows big companies, say Facebook, to have a special certificate so they can sideload apps into iOS devices like iPhones. So they can have internal apps. Well, it turns out Facebook was using this special certificate that Apple let them use to do special apps that they were, for instance, according to TechCrunch, paying teenagers to give up their privacy by using this app that basically installed a VPN so Facebook could look at everything they were doing. And Apple finally found out about it and revoked the certificate. So not only did that app stop working, but everything that Facebook was doing, like internal apps for, say, letting employees schedule rides home on, on the company buses, stopped working. And 
my initial reaction is that's really cool that somebody finally slapped Facebook for doing something wrong, even though it kind of screwed a bunch of employees. But I thought it was really interesting that Google apparently admitted, oh, we're doing something like that too, not quite as bad as what Facebook was doing. And theirs got revoked too. So Gary, you're the Apple guy. Yeah. So what do you think about this? Well, yeah, no, it was, uh, well, it's, it's kind of weird because first of all, the, the people signing up for the program supposedly knew what they were getting into, right? Facebook was paying them to be part of a study. You know, they wanted to see what kids would do, you know, what, where do they go? How do they behave? You know, how do they click on things? What's interesting to them? So they were paying for this, just like you might, you might invite a bunch of kids in to view some commercials or eat a breakfast cereal or something. Some market research, but you know, there's people that say, oh, that's fine. And there's other people that say, oh, the kids don't understand what it means, you know, blah, blah, whatever. To but give up, yeah. it's not, it's, I mean, it's not like Facebook was trying to hide it, hide what they were doing. They were doing a market research study and, you know, which is new, you know, when you throw in new technology, it can sometimes look nefarious, but you, you look at the old way that it's market research has been done for decades you know, we're just so used to it. I mean, maybe we should be looking at, you know, when you get asked, hey, here's a $20 Starbucks card if you come into the this room at the mall and answer some questions about some advertisements. You know, you're, are you giving away some of your privacy when you do that? Um, so that's kind of, it's what Facebook was doing. But, you know, using Apple's system, you know, Apple created that system for, you know, it's called ad hoc. Uh, it, it's for like, so say you have a hospital and you want to have everybody have an app that they can communicate with each other. Um, but you don't want to put that in the app store. You know, other people can download it. It's a private app for your organization. So you have this system where you can, you can do that. Um, and, and Facebook was using it for this purpose, which apparently was against Apple's terms of service. So, you know, they, uh, they shut it down. It was interesting how, um, you know, they were able to slap Facebook a little bit with it and Apple was able to come out looking good. Google, I was actually doing a similar thing. And after this happened, Google voluntarily came forward and said, oh, we're doing the same thing. <laughs> um, so we're, we've shut that app down already. We're admitting that we did it and uh, we're going to fix it. And then Apple, I think, then turned around and said, oh, well, we're shutting down your certificate too. And Google was like, yeah, we know it's cool. You're, <laughs> we know we we know that we shouldn't be doing this, and we should look closer at you know what we were doing with that certificate. So, but it's not really the kind of thing that affects most of us. Like, there's there was no way Facebook couldn't find anything about any of us or whatever. Uh, it's just it's just interesting that Facebook and Apple definitely seem to have become more and more rivals. Facebook couldn't have found out anything about you unless your kid was getting paid twenty dollars a month. <laughs> well, well, I would have had to. I would have actually been getting paid twenty dollars a month, and then maybe hopefully passing it on to my kid. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, Facebook companies like Facebook are going to want to know, like, okay, we developed a new interface. Everything's on the left instead of on the right now. You know, like, how do people react to that? It, so they're still going to want to do their studies. Um, Will people, uh, how will they do it differently now? If people have iPhones, how are they going to be able to study 
user interface changes or new features or whatever without somehow Honestly, having Apple involved. I'm kind of surprised that that kind of um, that kind of ability isn't somehow baked into iOS already, because it's certainly not unique to Facebook. It's unique to basically any app developer that they want to be able to to trace how how the system is being used. Apple should want this for themselves. Yeah, and you know you can do. I mean, there is a whole system for beta testing. So you know there's you know there's that there's analytics. And I don't know if the analyst, it sounds like Facebook's got a lot more detailed. Um, I mean, Facebook was actually looking not just at how their app was behaving, but was looking at other stuff you were doing. Maybe yeah. that's the line. So they were looking, if you were in the browser and going to, uh, you know, another website. No, it was keeping track of every site you went to. Yeah, and Wikipedia or whatever. It, it knew. Right, and what you were searching for. And also, apparently, they, they asked for, for kids to send them screenshots of everything they had purchased on in their Amazon purchase history. So they're going, going <laughs> and way the problem beyond. I have with this is that they're asking juveniles to give up their privacy. I don't think that legally juveniles can sign away their rights. Yeah, so well, their parents have that's, that's the problem I have with it. I mean, if, if adults want to do this, fine. Juveniles, no. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. So maybe the line it has to be drawn on: test your own app, your own stuff. Hmm. Don't poke your nose into what other things they're doing, and also um, don't ask kids to participate in these kinds of studies. I mean, and maybe you know this that might all come of this. You know, we might eventually end up there. Uh, and certainly, Apple has enough power to actually do it itself. It doesn't even have to be something done by states or federal government or anything. Apple can just say, "Look, here are the rules: no kids, no poking into anything outside your app. Uh, else, you know, you lose your privileges as an app developer." And then it would, it would basically be it's better than a law. You know, you could break a law, but Apple can actually enforce, uh, you know, through technology that you're not doing any of this stuff. The question is, on the Android side, would Google do the same? Because Google actually thrives on getting all this data. So probably not. Well, in both Apple and Google's case, you have to wonder, you know, clearly, it's true for any operating system. They have access to this information, period, right? It's just, it's, it's the way the world works. We're trusting them not to be doing um, exactly what they are now slapping Facebook for doing. Right. Yeah. And it's different. I mean, I think Google, especially if you're signed into your Google account, you know, you surf to, you know, someplace with your Google account and there's like the right cookies on that page. I mean, they know where you're going to, and that's not on your computer or your right. phone. That's on Google servers. Yeah. Whereas like Apple, what Apple claims is they don't know that's on your local machine, your local sure. machine. It's stored there, but Apple, the Apple servers have no idea where you are. That's exactly what they would say. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I and I don't mean that in a in a truly negative way. I, I'm not saying Apple's doing that. I'm just saying that the only thing we really have is their word, and you know that's well, we have their word, and also a lot of hackers out there that like to sniff data, going back and forth between servers, and and right. uh, you know, kind of hold people in check because you know there's a lot of fame. Uh, for a you know a hacker that can can show that hey 
wait a minute, this data is getting sent back to Apple servers. So Absolutely. that very same thing happened when Windows 10 first came out. People were looking at the data stream going back to Microsoft and saying, yeah. hey, it's reporting back a tremendous amount of telemetry. And the, the real issue there wasn't as much about what it was sending back, but the fact that it was completely unexpected and nobody was taking responsibility or documenting what it was for or why. So yeah. anyway, so the word that comes to mind, spicy. I see. <laughs> All right. One more to squeeze in here. Um, read an interesting article at uh, CNN Business saying how uh, that McCormick, which is a company that makes spices, and I bet most of us probably have their spices in our, in our kitchen, um, are, are, is using um, artificial intelligence to find new flavors. And uh, basically, they have an AI system um, trained on data about raw ingredients and, and seasoning formulas. And it suggests formulas for a new, new seasonings that it predicts will be novel, uh, new flavors that, that will, will interest people. Um, and it's, the article said a potential product may go through 50 to 150 iterations before the company settles on a final formula, which then, of course, they test it in the lab and sensory experts and, and all that to actually uh, taste it. Um, and one of the reasons that, that it, they say it's working is that it, the computer AI will come up with combinations that we might not think of because of cultural biases or, or uh, you know, you know you, you, if you ever travel to you know, Japan or something, you'll see all sorts of flavor combinations that you will never see in the United States because they, uh, people of different cultures might have different palate. Yeah, you know, kind of like different kinds of food. So, but the computer doesn't have those sort of biases, hopefully. And so we'll can uh, suggest flavor combinations that we might not think of. Um, the example that was given is in a recipe for a pizza seasoning. The AI suggested using cumin, which is outside the normal norm for pizza, but it, it came out, it worked out. Um, but in a mistake, the AI suggested uh, replacing all the rice in a rice dish with salt. So that, <laughs> <laughs> so that created a very nice seasoned salt, but it was not the rice dish that we were looking for. Uh, I look forward to uh, having all new types of heartburn in the future from, <laughs> right. from new ways. Yeah. Well, when we were on, we our, our trip a couple of weeks ago, I, I picked up some candy I'd never seen before, and it was uh, spicy Skittles. And it was like the Skittles fruit flavors, but with a kick of spice. And I finally tried them yesterday and it was exactly as described. It was like fruity, but with like significantly spicy. I'm just like, I was, I was wondering like, did the AI come up with this combination? Cause it's not something that I think that, that, uh, that most, uh, most of us would have, would have thought of. And I'm probably never going to have them again. So. And, and we all know Kit Kat candy. Um, in Japan, you yeah. can get green tea flavor. Yeah. Kit Kat. Strawberry cheesecake, apple vinegar, sweet potato, wasabi, and more. I mean, we have no idea of what they do overseas. It's, it's amazing. They love Kit Kat in Japan. It is like a major yes, brand. They do. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. That's a great place to wrap up. I'm hungry. <laughs> All right. Just a reminder, if you're in or near Denver or will be on April 2, don't forget our meetup. See the URL on the show page. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh57. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the 
TEH podcast. We'd appreciate you rating the podcast in whatever app you use and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next week. Bye. 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 Bye.